Lord has given me a gift. Only one. I am the most complete fighter in the world. Hello and welcome back to Adkins Undisputed, the most complete Scott Adkins podcast in the world. I'm your host, Mike Scott, on this journey through the career of one of the most exciting action stars of all time. This week, our first returning champion, Matt Essery, is back to join me to talk about 2005's Unleashed, a.k.a. Danny the Dog. Directed by Louis Leterrier, produced and written by Luke Besson, with fight choreography by Yun-Woo Ping, starring the great Jet Li, Morgan Freeman, Kerry Condon, and Bob Hoskins. So let me work this through one more time. I don't pay you. You take his collar off. Correct, Amondo. You take his collar off, he beats us all to death. So it's in my best interest to keep that collar on. When you finish with the master, kill the dog. Who's there? What's your name? All right, Mr. No Name. My name is Sam. Hi. He's cute. I've been meaning to ask you. You're all right with that thing around your neck? Put it up, babe. You basically turned a man into a dog. How did you do that? Like my saint of a mum used to say, get him young, the possibilities are endless. Kill him. My name is Danny. You ever have ice cream before? No. Oh, um, no, just, just working around. Oh, my God. Everything is new about you now. Your clothes, your hair, your whole life. I really do need to know where to find him. I think it's time to put the last thing away. Wait, will you just listen? No time. Look who's come home to his loving uncle. To the death. I don't want to hurt people anymore. I fate you, I trained you. I decide when there's no more killing. No, he's gonna kill him! You're my dog. Man, I can't tell you how much I was excited for this movie to be released, how much I loved it when it came out, and no spoilers for the discussion, how much that hasn't really changed. If you're an action fan and you have not yet seen Unleashed, you are in for a treat. Lee plays Danny, a man who has literally been raised as an attack dog by a local gangster played by the always great Hoskins. Danny's kept in a cage and only brought out when Hoskins needs him to do his dirty work. He removes Danny's collar... Danny goes on the attack. Danny has the mind of a severely abused animal. 
After a fortuitous car crash, Danny escapes and is taken in by a kindly man played by Morgan Freeman and his stepdaughter played by Carrie Condon. Together they teach Danny how to live, they teach him about music and art, but as expected, his old life catches up with him and many, many beatdowns occur. As I said, it was also known as Danny the Dog. The name was changed to Unleashed for its U.S. release, and I honestly can't decide which title I like better. I sort of feel like Unleashed actually matches the movie, even though it's ostensibly a more cliched action movie title. Scott appears in the movie very briefly. There is a fight scene in the middle of the movie or towards the end of the movie where uh, Danny has to fight several people in a pool. Scott is one of those. He doesn't get a lot of screen time, but the fight is pretty terrific, as Matt and I will talk about. Also, at this point, it's the only movie that Adkins has starred in with Jet Li. So... Now's the time to dig into Lee's career, one of the absolute most incredible martial arts stars of all time. Just so you know, most of this information is coming from Lee's official bio, uh, and where I go with other sources, I will link those in the show notes as always. Jet Li was born Li Lianji in 1963 in Beijing, China. At the age of eight, he began training with the Beijing Wushu Academy, winning five gold medals in the Chinese championships by the age of 11. 11 people. His acting career started with the Shaolin Temple Trilogy in mainland China. The massively successful trilogy is credited with kicking off the 80s mainland martial arts boom, both in films and real life. In fact, the films were so popular that they actually convinced people to help revive and preserve the real Shaolin Temple in Dengfang. After success on the mainland, Lee relocated to Hong Kong at the absolute height of the Hong Kong New Wave. His first few films, Dragon Fight and The Master, weren't world-changing successes, but I find them entertaining enough, for sure. Dragon Fight is also kind of notable because it's a co-starring role for a young Stephen Chow before he would blow up just a couple of years later in films like Fight Back to School and All for the Winner, on his way to becoming arguably the biggest star in the world everywhere except for the United States. Regardless of the quality of Dragon Fight and the Master, there's no argument that the movie that announced Jet Li's arrival to the world outside the mainland happened when he was cast as Chinese folk hero Wong Fei Hung in Once Upon a Time in China from master filmmaker Choi Hock. Remember him from Black Mask 2? This movie is the reason we care about Black Mask 2. Epic in scope, Once Upon a Time in China is a foundational piece for Hong Kong cinema. It established Lee as a superstar, and the action from Yun Wu Ping and the Yun Clan is second to none. Lee and Choi would reteam for what I think is the even better Once Upon a Time in China 2, adding Donnie Yen to the mix. And from there, Lee was off, going on a run of great films, matched arguably by only Jackie Chan, Swordsman 2, Fong Saiyuk, Bodyguard from Beijing, so many classic Hong Kong films. The absolute high point is the Gordon Chan-directed, Yun Ping choreographed Fist of Legend, a loose remake of Bruce Lee's Fist of Fury. It's a masterpiece of the genre. In the late 90s, Lee followed his contemporaries John Woo, Jackie Chan, Ringo Lam, Chow Yun-Fat, and Choi Hawk to Hollywood, where he was first cast as the villain in 1998's underwhelming Lethal Weapon 4. Lee got to show off more of his talents in his first U.S. starring role, Romeo Must Die, 
It was during this run in the U.S. he also made Unleashed. Not all of his U.S. movies are great. I think Cradle to the Grave is particularly bad, but most of them have something that makes them worth watching. Matt and I are going to dig deeper into some of his American movies, including 2001's The One, which we both have a real soft spot for. After that, Lee bounced back and forth between the U.S. and China, making Zhang Yimou's stunning hero in between The One and Cradle to the Grave. He continued to work in both Hollywood and Chinese films, though I think it's fair to say his Chinese work has been far superior to most of his U.S. work. I don't want to go through his entire filmography, as this is already going to be a fairly long podcast, but I do want to call particular attention to 2006's Ronnie Yu-directed Fearless. It doesn't quite rise to the level of hero, but I do believe it is another classic of the genre and well worth seeking out. Lee plays Ho Yan-ja, another Chinese folk hero famous for standing up to Western occupiers in China. It's kind of amusing since Ho Yan-ja is also the teacher of his Chen Zhen character from Fist of Legend. Uh, so he basically plays both master and student at various points in his career. Fearless is a far more methodical martial arts movie focused as much on philosophy as face-kicking action, but I think it's really terrific. Yu is a gifted director, and if you don't believe me, just watch The Bride with White Hair. And Lee is fully invested in the character. Yun Wu-Ping's choreography, as always, is amazing when the action does kick in, and it and Hero, in my mind, are kind of the peak of 2000s Chinese martial arts cinema. Fearless is also luckily one of the few Chinese films that got a major release in the U.S. without being absolutely butchered in the translation, so it's pretty easy to come by a good version. In fact, the Universal Blu-ray is readily available on Amazon, and it includes both the theatrical and Ronnie Yu's director's cut. I think both movies have value, but I will say that the director's cut adds in an entire subplot starring the always incredible Michelle Yeoh, so I do think if you can only pick one, watch the director's cut. Of late, Lee's output has decreased quite a bit to some unfortunate health issues. The South China Morning Post reported in 2018 that Lee suffers from hyperthyroidism, which he is treating. That, coupled with the numerous injuries he's accumulated over the years, have forced him to really slow down. Lee noted that the doctors told him if he continued to make action films, he might end up in a wheelchair. Lee stated, I'm just a regular guy. I'm not Wong Fei Hung. I'm not Ho Yun Jia. I'm just like you. There's been conflicting reports as to his actual health status, and Lee is constantly a fount of positive energy, so I think there is some argument that he maybe is downplaying it, but it's hard to tell. Either way, though, it's not what we want to think could happen to Jet Lee. I don't want to be a downer, but this is a sobering reminder to us action fans that these folks that we love, whether it's Lee or Jackie Chan or Scott Adkins or whoever routinely put their bodies on the line for our enjoyment, and we should never, ever take that for granted. Always keep that in mind when watching these films. I can't imagine that he would ever hear this podcast, but in case he does, Mr. Lee, I think I speak for every action fan in the world when I say we wish you a long and healthy life and no movie is worth your health. Best wishes to you, sir, and thank you for everything that you've given us. Lee is still active when he can be, even co-starring in this year's live-action Disney remake of Mulan. So it does seem like we'll still be seeing him in movies, hopefully for much longer, but we're probably not going to see him in the high-level action that we're used to. 
As mentioned earlier, Unleashed is also directed by Louis Leterrier. Now, I don't have much I want to add about Louis Leterrier. Of all of Luc Besson's protégés, I think he's probably the best, although I think you could argue that Pierre Morel is up there, if not better, having directed District B-13 and Taken. But I enjoy the hell out of several of his movies. Transporter and Transporter 2 are a ton of fun, and I even kind of dig his Incredible Hulk. Now You See Me is overlong and bloated, but it's got some really clever stuff in it. Admittedly, his Clash of the Titans is a hollow remake of a classic film, but man, that thing was flawed at its inception. I don't necessarily blame him for that. The only movie of his that I think is a true misfire is unfortunately one that I am going to have to talk about down the road. I am really not looking forward to rewatching The Brothers Grimsby, folks. In addition to Leterrier, I mentioned the film is produced and written by Luc Besson. Matt and I talk about Luc Besson fairly in depth, so I won't spend too much time on him here. He's a noted French action director and producer of classics like La Femme Nikita, Leon, and The Fifth Element. He is also unfortunately known for some predilections that make his movies difficult to watch. The allegations against him and going into them are so far beyond the scope of this podcast that I don't want to get into them, but there's no denying he's a major player on the worldwide action cinema landscape. I'm not even going to link to the allegations. Google is your friend, but he's made some movies I like. He's produced even more, and I never want to meet the man in person. Let's just leave it at that. All right, on a more enthusiastic note, the final thing I want to talk about before Matt and I get to uh, Unleashed is Yun Wu Ping. I put this off the last time because I don't even know how to begin to talk about Yun Wu Ping. How do you boil down the career of arguably the greatest fight coordinator of all time to a few minutes on a podcast that's not even dedicated to him? The answer I finally settled on is you don't. I thought about doing an Adkins adjacent pod on him, but honestly, much smarter, more qualified people like Kenny and the guys at Podcast on Fire, Ben from Kung Fu Movie Guide, Joff from Kung Fu Drive-In, and so many others are in a better position to talk about him and his impact. So please, listen to those shows. I'll make sure to leave some links in the show notes for them, and seek out any other writer who is talking about Yun Wu-Ping. Instead, I'm just going to highlight some of my favorite films of his and hopefully turn you on to some you haven't seen before. Several of these, I will also admit, Matt and I get into a little bit in the discussion. There's a bit of redundancy here, but I do want to drive these movies home because I think they're incredible. You can include the aforementioned Fist of Legend and Fearless in those recommendations, most of you have seen a Yun Wu Ping movie, even if you don't know it, since you all have seen The Matrix. But some of you probably haven't seen these. 1981's Dreadnought. Yun teams with Yun Bao, no relation, and Quan Ta King plays the legendary Wong Fei Hung for the last time. Dreadnought bridges the gap between the classic Shaw Brothers era Hong Kong Kung Fu while helping usher in the new era that we started to see in the 80s. It's a terrific Yun Bao performance. It's really showing off his athletic ability. And at 75 years old, Quan's skills are mind-blowing in this movie. 1985's Mismatched Couples. Do you want to see a breakdancing Donnie Yen? Yeah, no, you do. 
I could tell you more about the story, but frankly, breakdancing Donnie Yen should be all you need to know. The film's hard to come by, but the opening credits dance scene is on YouTube. Watch that, and you'll want to put in the effort to track down the film. I'm also including the trailer here because I want you to listen to the music and picture Ip Man breakdancing to this. You will love this movie. Nineteen-eighty-nine's In the Line of Duty 4, Witness. Donnie joins Cynthia Kahn in the fourth film in the long-running franchise. For those who don't know, In the Line of Duty is kind of a loosely connected franchise that started with Yes, Madam and Royal Warriors and then has morphed into a Cynthia Kahn starring vehicle. Yen and Kahn play Seattle cops who have to protect a... Yen and Khan play Seattle cops who have to protect a witness. It is one of the great 80s Hong Kong modern action films. It sees Yun transition to a more modern setting and fighting style than he'd used in his period pieces, and he makes the transformation perfectly. Finally, 1993's Iron Monkey. This may be a controversial statement, but I think Iron Monkey is probably the greatest martial arts movie of all time. Yu Rong Guan plays a Robin Hood-like figure battling a corrupt government. Donnie Yen again plays Wong Kei Ying, father to Chinese legend Wong Fei Hung, who first tries to stop, but then must team up with Yu's Iron Monkey. The last fight in this movie has to be seen to be believed, and Angie Sang as a young Wong Fei Hung is delightful. Seriously, see this movie. If you're region-free, Eureka just put out a beautifully restored Blu-ray last year. I could mention so many more, but this is a good place to stop. Folks, just frankly, Yun Wuping is a god amongst mere action mortals. So, as I mentioned, Scott's not in this one very much. In fact, even during the fight scene, it's a bit hard to get a good look at him throughout the scenes. He's, he's not even the featured fighter in this fight scene. And I had the opportunity, as always, to talk to him about how that came about. As you'll recall, he was coming off of EastEnders, which was not a great experience for him. And so the opportunity to work on a movie with Jet Li and Young Wu Ping and things like that, even though at that stage in his career might have been considered a bit of a step back, was one that he had to take. So I think this is the perfect time to kick it over me talking to Scott about Unleashed. Um... I remember EastEnders coming out around the time that I did Unleashed <laughs> because that is etched in my memory. That was so painful. <laughs> I remember being in Paris filming 
sorry, um, yeah, Unleashed, right? Danny the Dog, it was called. Yep, Danny the Dog, yep, yep. Yeah. And it was a bit of a step back for me, you know, because I'd done uh, Special Forces and I'd done my acting work. And now I was just going to go and do a fight scene with, with Jet Li. Uh, Yun Wu Ping had, had asked me to do it. And I, I felt like, ah, you know, this is a big step back. But I think I hadn't worked for a while and, you know, get to work with Yun Wu Ping again. And I've not worked with Jet Li. And I thought, oh, I'll, I'll do it. Um, but very aware that probably I was moving in the wrong direction at that point. But, you know, again, uh, that was a great experience because um, this was in the days of Jet Li being a bona fide box office star in America and having nice budgets to play with in these um, Luc Besson produced movies. I remember shooting that fight sequence. And by the way, Silvio Simak is like the main foil in that fight sequence. And he, he, we started off together on Black Mass 2. So uh, <laughs> me and Silvio are great mates, but I must admit I was quite jealous. So, ah, oh, I wish that was, I wish I had his part. But anyway, um, good spirited jealousy anyway. Um, but yeah, we had about two weeks to shoot that fight in the swimming pool there. It's crazy. That, well, and it shows. I mean, the, yeah. that fight is, is you know, I certainly think that fight is probably the high point of the movie. I, I actually just rewatched the movie a couple of days ago uh, to good get ready. Film. I, the film. I thought it was very good, actually. I love it. I love it. I think it's by far and away the best of Jet Li's American films. I like pretty much all of his American films, but I think it's by far and away the, the best one uh, because I think, first of all, Louis Leterrier knows how to shoot the hell out of a fight scene again and, and knows how to drive well, that stuff. this is it though, isn't it? Because he didn't shoot the fight scene. Oh, well then, I retract my compliment, <laughs> Mr. Leterrier. <laughs> That's what was very smart about Luke Besson. Uh, so with the transporter, he hired Corey Young Yunkwei to be the action director and... Louis Leterrier was the director, director. And that's the way they would always do it in Hong Kong. You'd have the director and you'd have the action director. And they would hand over to the action guy for the action. And the rest would be the director. And so that's that's the template that Luke Besson used to fantastic effect. Um, Yung Kuei was Kiss of the Dragon. Um, and then Unleashed was Yon Wu Ping stepping in to do all the fights. And it worked perfectly. And I remember having a, so I remember having a, a discussion with Louis Leterrier for about a negotiation about whether I was going to wear the string best uh, in that in that scene, and he obviously he won disappointingly. <laughs> I wanted to ask you because you know you like you mentioned you're you're reteaming with Yun Wu Ping, but you're in a very different situation now. You're in a a fairly big budget. Western movie with a, a much more, you know, Yun's doing a much more sort of hard edge style, which we know he could do, we, you know, he's done before. But was it, what was the difference working with him on that type of set versus working with him on Black Mask 2, if any? I am pretty sure that he had no idea that I was the guy that played Dr. Lang in Black Mask 2. I mean, obviously, I look completely different completely different i think i tried to mention to mention it to him and he just looked at me blankly um actually one of the stuntmen for jet lee on unleashed was tiger chen who obviously went went on to work with um in triple threat so that was cool but also when i worked with yomu ping for the third time on Ip man 4 as a major character um 
he still had no idea that we'd worked in the past. <laughs> <laughs> no idea. I had to tell it to him. Well, in fairness to him, he works with a lot of people. That dude is prolific. I mean, you're prolific, but that dude makes a lot of movies, especially, you know, in the 90s and 2000s. And in fairness to him, I look drastically different in all three movies. Yeah, you do have a, a kind of a spiky hair thing going on in, in Unleashed. That uh, <laughs> um, yeah, Definitely some sort of S&M vibe, I'd say. <laughs> so... Um, Obviously, you only had the one fight scene with Jet Li, but you get to check off another one of the greats off the box of, of people to work with. Uh, how was that? What was what was that like? Oh, amazing! Um, Jet Li was so impressive because we would rehearse that we'd been rehearsing the fight for a bit, and Jet Li was never there. We're doing it with his stunt double Tiger Chan, and um, Jet would sit down and just watch the section of the fight that we're about to film. We wouldn't, wouldn't physically get up and go through the motions. He would just watch it and he would get up and he was able to do it full speed just from watching it. Now I've done over 50 films and most of them fight movies. I, I couldn't do that. That blew my mind to have that skill, to be able to just sit there and watch it, memorize it and then go and do it at full speed pretty much without a mistake. That was impressive. And uh, one other thing that really sticks out in my mind about shooting that fight was there's a bit where Jet Li and I, we have to front kick each other at the same time. You know, I'm just a bigger guy than Jet Li. He's smaller than me. Um, and I didn't try to hit hard or anything, but I'm aware that there needs to, it needs to look like I'm trying to hit him hard. So I'd say we kicked with a, around the same sort of power, but he, he just flew on his back. And I got told off for that. But Jet Li was fine about it. He didn't have a problem. He was as nice as, as could be, but they gave me a bit of a telling off about that. But it's physics. You know, I'm the bigger guy. That's just the way it is. Yeah, I mean, that's sometimes that's just going to happen. Although it is, you know, you, it is different. You've got a fairly major Hollywood movie. You got a lot more insurance folks looking over your shoulder about stuff like that than, you know, than in Hong Kong. I mean, Jet Li's probably used to it. I'm sure he took, quite a few kicks during his Hong Kong days. So, but, uh, Oh yeah, no, he was fine. But you know, the stunt guys are also there to, to watch out for, for him. Right. Yeah. Thank you again so much to Scott Adkins for taking time out of his busy filming schedule to talk to me about working on this movie and where he was at this point in his career. All right, before we get to Matt, I want to let everybody know he and I get into some serious discussion on Hong Kong cinema and a handful of books that became essential Bibles for us. Most of them are out of print, but I am going to leave links in the show notes to Amazon for them. Used copies can be picked up for not too much, and believe me, they are so completely worth it. I will fully admit, we go deep in the weeds on this one. Talking all sorts of stuff, from piracy versus preservation, to our favorite Hong Kong movies, to Luke Basson, to all sorts of stuff. It's a bit different and more free-flowing than most of my episodes have been, but I hope you'll all get something out of it. And if nothing else, you'll end up with a really kick-ass list of movies to watch. 
I also did a bit less editing on this one than usual because I wanted to maintain the flow of the conversation. So you're going to hear some more ums and some breaths than what you typically hear. I hope that's not too upsetting to you, but I think it's worth it to keep the conversation going. So with that out of the way, let's bring back our returning champion, Matt, to talk Unleashed. So what are we waiting for? Bring me your fucking champion. All right, we are back for the second week of our big uh, Matthew Esri extravaganza. And uh, I will admit, I had initially conceived of not spending a lot of time on Unleashed because Scott's role is, is, is minuscule in this movie. He's barely in it. He has one fight scene. You only see him. I think you see his face like once. But when I rewatched it, man, it's Unleashed. Unleashed needs its own, regardless of Scott's sort of role in it. This movie requires its own episode. So coming back is Matt Essery. Uh, as I said last week, he writes for, he used to write for Ain't It Cool News. He's written for Screen Anarchy, Action Elite. He runs his own podcast and site, Video Culture. Uh, he is one of my favorite people on Twitter. I'm so happy that he was willing to do this two-part sort of uh, thing with me because we both realized that there was just a lot more to say. Matt, welcome back, man. I'm so delighted to have you back. Thanks so much for having me, man. I still can't believe I caught my way into a second episode already, you know? <laughs> yeah, you, uh, you are the first and I think very likely looking at my guest list, the only person that's going to do a back-to-back. -back. So it's very exciting. Hopefully people liked the last episode and you're not going to be sick of hearing us. I don't think you will be because I think the last episode was really terrific. Uh, and this one, I, I'm really, really excited. Last episode, I asked you about your history with action movies and your history with Adkins. I don't want to rehash that. So instead, I'm going to ask you a little more pointed historical questions. Tell me, first and foremost, your thoughts on Louis Leterrier, the director of, of Unleashed. Okay, well, I hope he never hears this. Um, I well, I'll start off. I'll start off with praise and say I think that Unleashed is his his most well directed film. Otherwise, I'm not a big fan. Um, I I think that he is mostly style over substance, and his style is not that interesting to me. Um, I think I think Unleashed is the is the exception in his filmography, at least for me personally. I I don't really like the Transporter that much. I think the Incredible Hulk is just as bad as the Ang Lee Hulk movie, but in different ways. So I'm just not, I'm, I'm not really a, a fan of his, so to speak. Well, and I think all those criticisms are fair. People who've heard my intro know I'm, I'm actually a bit more favorable to him than that. I think of the Luke Besson factory, he is the best that's come out of that. I know a lot of people, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I'm guessing if you had to pick one, you'd probably say Pierre Morel was the best one to come out of the Basson factory. I would think so. Um, and, I, and I think it's easy to say that the worst is, is Oliver Megaton. Yeah, yeah. I don't think there's any question yeah. that that's <laughs> the, that's the worst. I certainly have a lot of affinity for Morel. I like taken. I love district B 13. Uh, yes. I mean, I just absolutely love that movie. 
for some reason, I've always had a soft spot for Leterrier. I, I think he's made some pretty terrible movies. Uh, as I said in my intro, I think Brothers Grimsby is maybe the movie that I am least looking forward to talking about on this <laughs> podcast. But unfortunately, Scott Adkins has a fairly sizable role in it, and so I'm going to have to talk about it. But I think that movie is borderline unwatchable. But I do like The Transporter and The Transporter 2. I have a soft spot for Incredible Hulk. And obviously, I mean, I love this movie. And I do agree with you. This is his this is his pinnacle. This is the closest he's got. I wouldn't call this movie a masterpiece, but it's certainly the closest he comes to approaching a masterpiece. Uh, because I think everything that he does well is running on all cylinders here. I, I think it, I think it's a really strong film, and actually, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and be bold, and I'll say I think it's one of the strongest films of Jet Li's filmography. Yeah, let's put a pin in that, because I'm going to ask you yeah, about Jet Li we'll in a little bit, it, yeah. and we'll yeah. come back to it, because I do yeah. have a lot I want to say. Uh, while we're talking about it, though, I would be remiss to ask to not ask also your thoughts on Luc Besson. Um, well, that's a very loaded question in 2020. Um he um but i also have... think i sorry i also think it's a question that needs to be asked given carrie condon's role and characterization in this movie unfortunately <laughs> i think it needs to be asked yeah it's it's i i it's hard it's like so where to even begin with that uh I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and start off with the things i think he's done that that have that have been good for the film industry uh again he brought he brought Hong Kong cinema to a wider audience, to an international audience. He, he was a great champion for that style of filmmaking. He made a couple, what I would call legendary films with, uh, with Leon and La Femme Nikita. But he is probably uh, one of the most problematic filmmakers in the world because he clearly has some problems. And I'm not, I don't even know how to go into it politely but but his his predilections bleed into his films and it is sometimes really hard to separate what you know about him as a person and what is in his film because it's all there and sometimes it's for lack of a better word icky and tr troublesome and i'm being as polite as i possibly can be right now and um, and i agree and i'm going to second all of that i'm actually I'm one of the people who doesn't like Leon because even when I saw Leon in 1994, that movie squicked me out for reasons I can't explain. It doesn't bother me in the fifth element. It doesn't bother me in some of his other movies. It doesn't really bother me in this one, except for the fact that I know who Luc Besson is. Uh, but Leon just, it squicked me out even then, and I've never really, I, I can objectively understand it as an action masterpiece and a pivotal, important movie in cinematic history. But it's it's always been a movie that has just never worked for me because of that. It's 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 right there under the surface for Leon. And I, I'll be honest with you, when I saw it as a kid, as a teenager, I didn't pick up on it because I I guess that I didn't I didn't quite catch the age how weird the age disparity was or I just didn't that wasn't thinking in that mindset but going back now it's a lot harder to watch and it's not really a film I revisit but I can't deny that it's an important film 
in action cinema. No, there's no question. It's it's a massively important film. And and you know, I'm not a big cancel art guy, so I'm not saying Leon should be canceled or anything. I, I'm yeah. totally fine with Luke Basson being canceled. Cancel the fuck out of him. But yes. I don't think that Leon should necessarily be canceled. Uh, but I do remember, I very similar, I'm a couple of years older than you, very similar to you. I didn't quite pick up on it. I saw it in the theater. I didn't love it, and it felt kind of wrong. And then I remember watching it on video with my parents, and at one point, my dad just going, what the fuck is this? <laughs> and it like, just, it, it like solidified in my head of everything that was wrong with that movie. Yes, sometimes sometimes you need that outside perspective to even point out that it's weird because sometimes you can be so summed into to what it is on a literal standpoint that you sometimes you need that outsider to be like, this is fucked up. Yeah, and you and, this is fucked up. And my dad's a big action guy. I mean, part of the reason I'm such a big action fan is my is my pops. So it's not Me like too. he's like anti action or was just like this. No, he's straight up zeroed in right on what was going on in that movie. I don't want to. I don't want to turn this episode into a downer. So I'm going to move past Luke really quick. I just want to ask because it's his most recent movie. What did you think of of 2019's Anna? Um, I think it has really good action sequences. I think everything else about it is pretty laughable. I, I wrote about it for the Action Elite. I was overly kind to the action sequences because the Action Elite is an action fan website. But but the story structure, the plot, and the acting of that film is very very poor but there's some quality action in it there is and i will say i thought sasha loose i didn't think her acting was that great but i thought she cut a pretty impressive screen presence i i i I would certainly watch her in another movie hopefully not directed by luke Vasson. yeah and it also bothered me that 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 film equated sex with affection which is that that's a thing that really bothered me about the film at the time. Uh, but luckily with the Jet Li film, we don't have to worry about any of that today. talking about Unleashed. No, we don't. Yeah, super Chase, which I, which I kind of appreciate. I do too. I do too. And it's one of the only ways that, you know, because again, Carrie Condon's character, she's got the braces on. She's, they make a big point of her saying I'm 18 and Morgan Freeman saying, uh, you know, by one week or whatever it is, but nonetheless, it's a very chaste relationship. It's a very chaste movie. And so we don't need to, I don't want to belabor the point. I just, I feel like I wouldn't be doing justice if we didn't at least bring it up. Yeah. We have to address it because it's there and it, and it influences our reaction to the film, especially now seeing it in, in retrospect. I mean, it, I thought about it. So you have to bring it up. You have to, we have to go into it a little bit for sure. I totally agree. That being said, I want to move on to something a little happier. Tell me about your history with Yen Wu Ping. <laughs> well, the history with, 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 with Wu Ping goes back to my history with Hong Kong film, which I said on the last episode I would talk more about. I'm from the Deep South. So I grew up in a small town called Tupelo, Mississippi, which is in the Deep, Deep South. So you got to wonder how, how did a kid who grew up in basically hillbilly country Home discover, of Elvis, if I'm not home mistaken. Of Elvis. Yep. Yes, yeah, home of Elvis. So I, I now live in Nashville. I often tell people I moved from one tourist trap to another tourist trap. Um, so, but anyway, so how, how did a kid who grew up in that kind of area discover Hong Kong cinema? Well, as I said last time, I, I'm an, I was an action fan, and we had a lot of video stores in my hometown. There were you know, lots of like 
we had the Hollywood block, the Hollywood video, the blockbuster video, and then like five or six mom and pop video stores. Well, one day a new one opened up right next to the blockbuster for some reason. I thought, well, it's right next to the blockbuster. I'm just going to go check it out. And it literally was a video store set up for my town's Chinese population. Because there, there, there were a lot of Chinese uh, day laborers who lived in my area. There were, there were a lot of restaurant workers. And this basically, this, this video store was to, was to cater to them. I mean, it had a small English section of American movies, but it, half the store literally was Hong Kong VHSs. And I remember, I, I remember reading about John Woo because of Hard Target. So not knowing anything else, I, I just went up to the clerk who was very clearly, you know, the owner, the proprietor. And I said to him, do you have any John Woo movies? And he kind of looked at me funny because, you know, I'm just this, you know, this white kid in this obviously very Chinese oriented business. And he just, he thought about it for a second and then nodded and came back with the Tyson videotape for Hard Boiled. And I took that home. It was not subtitled, but of course, you know, you've seen Hard Boiled. It doesn't need subtitles. I watched that tape four times that weekend, had no idea what was happening. And I went back the next week and I said, well, what else do you have? And he just started giving me videotapes. And I, I met other kids, other, other teenagers who kind of stumbled into it as well. And we all started talking about movies we had seen. And one guy was like, you got to see these movies by this guy named Jet Li. And he told me to specifically watch Tai Chi Master and Feng Sayuk. And so honestly, the first Jet Li movie I ever saw was Tai Chi Master. I watched it late at night one night. I had never seen a wire foo movie. I had never seen like a 90s new wave kung fu movie. And my very first one was Tai Chi Master by, by Yuan Wu Ping. Can you think of a better gateway drug into flying sword movies than Jet Li and Yuan Wu Ping in Tai Chi Master? It was it was like it was like it was like 2001 a space odyssey. Like it was full of stars. I my mind was blown and I, I just couldn't, I couldn't even fathom what I was watching. It was funny. The action was crazy. It all seemed so foreign and mystical, but I wanted to understand it. And I was just so captivated by it. And then I watched Funk Sayuk and that it's, it's fun in a different way. But I just, after that point, after seeing Hard Boiled and then those two movies, I was a lifer at that point. And I was, I was like 14 years old and I was in my high school being like, oh, you got to watch this movie called Tai Chi Master. You got to watch Fist of Legend. And the other kids thought I was insane because I was watching these, these Chinese movies. And I couldn't convince them that, you know, these guys were making the coolest action films. And that all began really with Yun Wu Ping. So... I've I've mentioned this before on this show, but a very similar experience. So here in Salt Lake City, there's a art theater called The Tower, and they also have a video store. And in the 90s, what they would do, it's probably, I'm sure it's illegal as hell, but they were still doing it, and I thank them to death for doing it. They would buy and import a bunch of Hong Kong laser discs. It, where they couldn't get the Tai Sing version. So, you know, and shout mm-hmm. out to Tai Sing. I mean, Tai Sing, anybody listening to this, if you're of, if you're between the age of about 45 and 35, the name Tai Sing probably just fills you with warm 
feelings because we are all here and who we are because of that company. But where they couldn't get the Tysing videotapes, they would import Hong Kong laser discs and then they would dub them to VHS and they would rent out the dubbed VHS. Mm-hmm. And that is how I saw so much of my Hong Kong cinema. I mean, I saw God of Gamblers, I saw Tai Chi Master, I saw Fist of Legend. I saw so many of these that way. And then the other big thing that for me was a a big deal, and I mentioned last episode, you know, he's problematic as hell now. Bay Logan wrote a book in, I want to say 1995, called Hong Kong Action Cinema. And that was... I'm saying I'm actually I'm actually looking at my copy of it right now. It's on my shelf. And it's it, I mean, that is that was a Bible for me for Same. years. I carried that book around. I, I made it a point to try and track down every single movie that he talked about in that book. Same. And, it, you know, and again, if you research Bay Logan, it's not great. No. His history is not great. But I will say that. Regardless of that, Hong Kong action cinema, another one that came out just shortly after uh, in 1996 by Stephen Hammond and Mike Wilkins called Sex and Xana and a Bullet in the Head. Those books went with me everywhere for like five years. I mean, I just tried to watch every single movie I could in those books. And most of that was The Tower. I was able to get them. And a lot of times I loved The Tower because if I was like, hey, do you guys have this? And they would be like, no, let's see if we can get it. And they would try and get them. Uh, there's there's a couple that they would get. And that's they also would show midnight showings. I mean, I saw Naked Killer on the big screen there. I saw Bullet in the Head and Hard Boiled and The Killer and Drunken Master and Drunken Master 2. I saw them all on the big screen at that theater because they would do every couple of months, they would do like a month of Hong Kong midnight movies. It was... The tower's uh, not my favorite theater now because it's a, it's an old theater. It's a pretty miserable experience to watch a movie there. But man, in the nineties, I, I owe everything to that theater. So I I know what you're saying when you talk about that video store. That just you are who you are because of that video store. Yeah, it it honestly shaped my entire life, which is weird to say, but it really did because I've honestly had a lifelong obsession with this stuff that's never gone away. Like I still to this day collect, you know, gray market DVDs and bootlegs of Laserdisc copied onto DVD that never got released to any other home video format. Um, and I'm still finding new ones all the time. And there was, and I had both those books too. And there's another book I had that was a compilation of reviews from a, from a fanzine called Asian trash cinema. I have that. I have that exact same book. I, and yeah. I actually bought, I would go to to Borders or Barnes and Noble because they would actually carry Asia. It started as Asian trash cinema and then became Asian cult cinema, mm-hmm. and they would actually carry the issues. And I would go every month and pick up my issue of Asian cult cinema. I still have a stack, probably you know thirty five issues deep of Asian cult cinema. Yeah, I, I wish I still had mine, but what what I've got is is the final like collected volume of the, of the reviews they put out called Asian Cult Cinema. It's by a guy named Thomas Weiser, and it's just chock full of, of of course the standard movies. But there's a guy. It's also got micro reviews of like weirder stuff, like Holy Virgin versus Evil Dead, and uh, and you know Pom Pom and Hot Hot, and stuff like that. 
and some and some of the reviews are terrible. So like like the, like the reviewers got a real bias against some actors like Stephen Chow. Like it like it, like they hate every Stephen Chow movie, but still because it had so many obscure titles in it, it gave me like a starting point for how to find movies. Like oh that's the title that's who this is. So I started like hunting down like movie titles and actors and it, it created this huge rabbit hole that I'm still following through to this day. Absolutely, I found. Uh, the Seventh Curse, which is a movie that I watch every October because of Asian cult cinema, and and I'm with you. Thomas Weiser was actually kind of a dick. He had one of yes. those very like hipster attitudes that he was the internet before the internet existed, right? Yeah. Like that snarky internet writing. He hated Stephen Chow. He hated Wong Jing, which I don't necessarily disagree with. Also, that's kind of, you know, I, I like a lot of Wong Jing's movies, but that's totally just fine. And we're going to get into that a little bit, I'm sure, as we talk about Jet Li, because their careers are pretty heavily linked, uh, Jet Li and Wong Jing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because there was that whole, and we'll talk about it a little more, but there was that, he signed that exclusive contract with Wong yeah. Jing. And, uh, but uh, for those who actually want to check out Asian cult cinema, I can tell you this, that several issues are available on the Internet Archive. So if you want to know what we're talking about, I know Internet Archive is, you know, controversial and not everybody loves it. And certainly certain authors, <clears throat> Chuck Wendig, uh, really hate it and are trying to shut it down. But I do love it because Asian cult cinema doesn't exist anymore. And that was such a seminal fanzine for so many of us that it shouldn't disappear into ether so you can find uh two things that are readily available on that are asian cult cinema and another fanzine called cinema sewer yes. you can get them both and they will open up a whole new world of hong kong and underground horror and action and all sorts of stuff so go to internet archive search them, check them out. You will not regret it. I promise you that. Yeah. And, I, and, just, and just, just to kind of, to kind of wrap up the idea of the internet archive and that, that idea, the gray market is essential to classic Hong Kong film now, because a lot of these movies are never going to get released on Blu-ray. A lot of them never made it onto videotape here in America. So sometimes the only way you can see these is through, is still through like tape. Tra uh, I, I say that, that's how old I am. Tape traders through, through like, you know, movie traders and torrent websites. And, and, and you know, we, do, we don't support piracy here. Obviously, we're Scott Atkin fans, so we're very anti-piracy. But you have to make an exception for some of these really obscure movies. And some of these movies we're gonna, probably, probably going to reference today just simply because there is no way to see them any other way, and they shouldn't die out. Yeah, and, and a perfect example of that is me talking about how hard it's been to find, and it's not even Hong Kong cinema, but how hard it's been for me to find Trying to find, you know, because I'm trying to be the completionist Scott Adkins podcast, and I've had a hell of a time trying to find, you know, his episodes of EastEnders or the episode he did of City Central and stuff like that. And, and those are not being preserved either, let alone Hong Kong, which gave no shits even at the time about preservation. They still kind of don't, which is sad. Yeah, no, you know, I just found one. Uh, a little while ago, it, it's a Yukari Oshima movie called Final Run that was only oh, ever... So good. And it was only really released on Laserdisc. And I have a, a rip of the Laserdisc. And 
it's an awesome movie, and I'm so annoyed that it's not like that. I can't just tell people, "Oh, hey, just go to Yes Asia and buy this Blu-ray yeah. of it because it rules." And and Mike, there there are hundreds of those, hundreds of movies that will blow your mind that you just can't see because it never made it past Hong Kong Laserdisc. Like I, I literally have f- four hundred easy of like burned DVDRs of like laser discs of, uh, of DVD copies of laser discs that you just can't get anymore. So the, the, your only option is the gray market traders. And we're not saying that you should like buy them from these people or support these people who, who, who sell these things, but you know, find people who will trade them to you, find them on torrent sites. They should be seen because there's so many great films that, so many great action films that are similar to the people we're talking about on this podcast, people like Scott Atkins that, you know, that are so in danger of being forgotten about. And that as, as someone who spent my life watching Hong Kong films, it makes me really sad and nervous. That's something I love. It could, could completely die out. I agree. couple of things. One, I still have a laser disc player primarily for old Criterion Laserdiscs, like my killer and hard-boiled Laserdiscs. Nice. And for Hong Kong Laserdiscs that I still, when I see them pop up on eBay, I'll still try and acquire them if I can. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is, is I mentioned this in the episode I did when I talked to Kenny B about Extreme Challenge, which was directed by Stephen Tung Wai, uh, and you mentioned it a few minutes ago, Pom Pom and Hot Hot is one of the most amazing cinematic experiences of my life. And that is only available on, I think it's a Delta Mock DVD from like Mm -hmm. 1998. Yeah, it's full screen and it looks terrible. And if you can find one on eBay, you're going to pay like a hundred bucks for it. And that is a movie that people need to see because yes. the final act of that movie is one of the most delirious gun fu action spectacles that I that's never been topped as far as I'm concerned. And and again, it it's in danger of just well, you know, I part of the way this all came about is I went a little viral. Because I was talking about Broken Path, which is a similar thing, and that's a much newer movie, but it's never gotten a good release. It's never gotten a U.S. release, and I think it's one of the most insanely over-the-top, ridiculously awesome action movies that I've ever seen. Yeah, it's got a bad script, and it's got bad acting, but Jesus, it's an 85-minute fight scene. And it's yeah. in danger of disappearing, and that drives me nuts. Well, I. And- yeah, I, I get it, man. I, I feel that way about a movie that you that you mentioned before on the show, Blood Moon with Gary Daniels. That that DVD is out of print and costs a fortune, and it's not a nice DVD. And that's such a crazy fun movie. It's probably the best Gary Daniels movie. And if you want to see it, your options are very very limited to basically shitty YouTube bootlegs, and it's heartbreaking. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to go down too far of a rabbit hole, and we don't want to yeah. get on to. But uh, similarly, one of my very favorite Gary Daniels movies, and uh, everybody that's listening or follows me knows I ride or die for Albert Pune. You know, Heat Seeker, same thing. I still have yeah. my Heat Seeker laser disc because you can't find Heat Seeker anywhere. 
And and Pune has a most, you know, arguably one of the most famous ones because I think his best movie, at least in competition with Cyborg, is one called Radioactive Dreams with yes. Michael Dudikoff and John Stockwell. And mm-hmm. man, shitty YouTube bootlegs are literally the only way you can watch that movie. And again, as someone who basically has dedicated their life to movies, it's so concerning to me and it's upsetting to me. And I just, I feel like part of the reason we do shows like this is, yes, we're going to talk about Unleashed and how great it is, but it's going to get a chance to talk about those more obscure Jet Li movies too and name check other people he's worked with and get the names of some of these movies out there so people will go look for, you know, the bodyguard from Beijing or go look for high risk or go look for Dragon Fight, you know, and discover these movies so that so they're just not forgotten. Preservation matters. If there's one thing that I, I am going to repeatedly uh, hit on this podcast, preservation matters. And we do a really terrible job of it. And Hong Kong, the U.S. does a terrible job of it, but Hong Kong does an even worse job. And it blows my mind because streaming should make preservation even easier, right? What does it cost? I mean, I don't even need necessarily like full arrow video remasters of these movies. Just find the best version you can and throw it up on Amazon Prime so that it doesn't disappear into the ether. Like, obviously, I want restorations and stuff like that. You know, the the Eureka restoration of Iron Monkey just fills me with glee, but throw the best version you can up on Amazon prime. So people can see these fucking movies. Yeah. I I completely agree. And part, and part of me feels like it has a grumpy old man response to it. Like it was so hard to find these when I was a kid, they should have to struggle and I, I have to fight this. And I was like, no, they shouldn't because of what we have now with the internet, it should be as easy for a kid to discover the killer or again a movie like Jet Li's Hitman through just by you know flipping it on it should be as easy to find as anything by Tom Cruise or Bruce Willis because the internet should be democratic in that respect I agree and and what ends up happening you know this is a very controversial thing what ends up happening is somebody like the guy that runs Hong Kong Rescue has to step in and engage in some very gray market behavior that a lot of people get upset about. But for people like us, it's like, well, if the best way I can see Peking Opera Blues is to buy this gray market disc that this dude literally restored and created in his friggin' office, well, I'm going to do it because you're not giving me another option. Exactly, exactly. And it's and it's uh, we've gotten really into the weeds here, and please forgive us, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. But because we have me and Mike, obviously feel very strongly about this stuff. But yeah, I completely agree. And uh, I often worry about the Hong Kong uh, uh, rescue guy because I, I think he's getting big enough for people. Someone's going to notice eventually, and that's going to get shut down quickly. So if you haven't gotten his releases, get them quick because that could go away at a moment's notice. And I'm going to tell you, his discs are beautiful. I they mean, are. They're worth the money. Like, they really are. I would love to, you know, I, and this is how I justify it. 
I bought his discs of police story. I also bought the Criterion police story disc when it came out. I support, mm-hmm. you know, and it's actually funny. I tying it back into the theme of the podcast. Mm-hmm. I remember a Kung Fu movie guide episode where, where Scott was saying, uh, Boyka, for those who don't know, Undisputed 4 got released to the torrent sites really early. And mm-hmm. he had basically said, look, I get it. You like me. You want to watch my movie. That's fine. Just please, please, please make sure you buy the official release when it comes out. And in case there's any confusion, Matt and I are going to tell you, buy the official release when it comes out. Buy yes. it more than once. Do you know how many times I have bought Scott Adkins movies? Because I usually buy them digitally, and then when they come out physically, I'll end up buying them. But it, I'm not going to lie. I have also downloaded them. Every one that I've downloaded, I've bought. Buy the physical release or the digital release, but buy the official release because if you want these people to continue making movies, they need to know that people are going to buy these releases yes because the key difference is these movies that you and i are talking about with hong kong films these are movies from 20 30 years ago that 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 are in danger of just disappearing completely scott atkins is an actively working creator and if we don't financially support him he's not going to be able to work anymore we're not going to have what we enjoy most which is his films you know so there's a world difference between supporting like Hong Kong Rescue and downloading Undisputed for Boyka off the torrent site. Roll the difference there. Yeah. So buy movies if you can. I I have bought Undisputed 3 four times <laughs> in my life because I bought it digitally when on uh, Amazon, but I typically use Vudu. So I, because it it's not movies anywhere. So I bought it yeah. again on Vudu. I bought it on DVD and I bought it on Blu-ray. Like, yeah. and that, you know what? I'm happy to do that because my 15 or $20 ensures that Scott gets to keep making movies and I will continue to do that. But like you said, Matt, it's very different when we're talking about preservation. We're talking about movies that you literally cannot buy anywhere. Sometimes, sometimes you have to struggle even to find them to find them in the gray market. Like so they're even hard to find in questionable means. But uh, and it's and again to try to tie it back in. And it's sad that movie stars as big as Jet Li have films that are suffering from this. Think about how mind blowing that is. One of the biggest movie stars to ever come out of Asia has movies that you can't really see. Movies that were successful. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned Dragon Fight. That's that's a big one. Um, I do want to shout out, and then I'm going to bring us back on topic really We got to get there someday, man. Yeah. We got to get there someday. <laughs> but I do want to shout out, Eureka has done really good work, but one company that I think is arguably doing the best work possible for Hong Kong preservation right now is a UK company called 88 films. They are doing some absolutely terrific Hong Kong work. They have a Blu-ray of a a Hong Kong movie called seating of a ghost, which I never thought in my life I would see on Blu-ray. And if you haven't seen seating of a ghost, you really need to check that movie out because it's fucking bananas. And I have, and I have a Blu-ray of that movie. Because of 88 films. So well, that, 
that's like I've got. I'm, I'm waiting for my Blu-ray of uh, of Unearth's films uh, release of Untold Story to come in. I'm waiting on that to come in in the mail. Like I can't believe I'm gonna have like a a beautiful Blu-ray special edition of Untold Story. That to me is just what a time to be alive, you know? Yeah, and I mean, obviously there are companies trying to do this. You know, they don't do a ton of Hong Kong stuff, but I I, I wouldn't I would be remiss to shout out not shout out Brad Henderson and Vinegar Syndrome for doing the same thing. Like there are movies that I own on Blu-ray. I shit. I own Tammy and the T-Rex on 4k. Like, (laughs) like I can't get once upon a time in China on 4k, but I own Tammy and the T-Rex on 4k. Yeah. And that shows why, why I'm so passionate about Hong Kong film preservation. Even if it's just like getting your hands on DVDRs or, or MKVs or whatever you can get, just find these films we're talking about and give them the love and attention they really deserve. I agree completely. All right. Tying it back to, uh, and we've talked a little bit about it, but I asked you about your history with Yun Wu Ping. Jetly, you've mentioned some of it already. You mentioned Tai Chi Master was was one of the first ones. What else, you know, sort of shaped you? And I'll ask you for some Jet Li recommendations at the end, but what other Jet Li movies really sort of shaped you as a an action fan? Well, again, Feng Sayuk and uh, a lot of the, and, uh, again, his name is kind of, it's kind of questionable, Hong Kong film fans, but his, his collaborations with Wong Jing, like New Legend of Shaolin, which is a terrible movie with really great Corey Yoon choreography in it. Uh, or a movie like My Father is a Hero, uh, directed by Corey Yoon. Those are, those are great, you know, Jet Li Hong Kong films or like High Risk, which is like a, a diehard ripoff. Again, Wong Jing, terrible story, terrible comedy, phenomenal action. And again, you gotta remember, I'm seeing these at a time where action in the 90s in American films was very bland. This was pre-Matrix. And all, and all American action films felt very samey to me. And, and seeing Jet Li in these kind of crazy action films, again, it was a revelation. I had never seen anything like it. I'd never seen anything that felt so vibrant and alive and chaotic and frankly, a little insane and dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you actually mentioned, and one, we mentioned Thomas Weiser of, of Asian cult cinema. His work with Wong Jing, I don't think is his best work, but I will admit, Weiser hated this movie, Last Hero in China, which is his his Wong Fei Hung movie that he did with Wong Jing. I really love that movie, man. I I kind of like it too. Yeah, it's good. You know, and Wiser hated, for those who haven't seen it, it, the whole plot is sort of Wong Fei Hung gets, which is who Jet Li played in the Once Upon a Time in China movies. He's -hmm. a Chinese folk hero. He's a legend. But he gets his ass kicked by this snake uh, martial arts group. And he realizes that roosters can beat snakes. And so he learns a whole new martial art. That's like rooster Kung Fu rooster style. And he's got like a rooster head on and stuff. 
And I'm not. It is so silly, but it's awesome at the same time. It is. I'm laughing just thinking about it, man. It's it's so fun. It is because it still checks the boxes of like hero gets his ass kicked, has to learn. You know, it's very fucking shonen manga. Hero gets his ass kicked, has to level up, learn a new style, and and powers up to beat the bad guy. Like I. I'm not going to lie. I really, really love Last Hero in China. It's so silly. It's got all of the problems with Wang Jing movies. Mm-hmm. There's just potty humor and misogyny and all that shit. But, yeah. man, I fucking... Weird stuff, yeah. It's hard to explain, yeah. But I fucking love that movie. Yeah. I really do. Well, and one thing for our listeners who may not, may not have made the connection, Jet Li, again, you said he was playing some character for Once Upon a Time in China. That's Wong Fei Hung, which is also the character Jackie Chan plays in the Drunken Master films. Wong Fei Hung is, is a big folk hero in China. Like, he's been used in TV shows and movies for decades. So, to give you a little bit of crossover, that's the same character Jackie plays in the Drunken Master films, but two very different interpretations of it. Well, and I... I off the record you won't have heard this yet but in my intro i'm going to talk about dreadnought so um i'm going to just and one of you know those who've heard the intro dreadnought a a yuan wuping movie starring yun bao but also stars so kwan tak hing played wong fei hung and i want to say matt 80 movies or something along those lines yeah, he's basically to Wong Fei Hung what Sean Connery is to James Bond. Yeah, and Dreadnought is just an absolutely staggeringly terrific movie. And at the age of almost eighty, I Quan King is still blowing away. Like Wong Fei Hung is, for those who don't, he's he's the American Wyatt Earp. I mean, he's yes. he's he's a perfect example. He's yeah. a folk hero that everybody in China knows. The other one that you kind of mentioned a little bit that I just want to talk about before we get into Unleashed is you brought up Bodyguard from Beijing. Man, that movie rules. It, it's so good. And that's an incredibly hard movie to find. Well, it's hard to find in its uncut, unmolested, non-Weinstein version. Because um, it got released in America as, I believe, The Defender? Did yeah, that? it's The Defender. Yep. Yeah. But but again, that's that's from about that's edited, it's dubbed. You know, you want to avoid that if you can. I mean, if you just got to see it, which I think you do, it's it, it'll do. But but if you can find the uncut original language version of Bodyguard, Bodyguard from Beijing, oh man, it's top notch. It is absolutely fantastic. And I will say we are several episodes into this podcast and I have avoided getting thirsty, but I am going to have to say that I am thirsty for Christy Chung in that movie. There is just no question that she yes. is... <laughs> One of the most gorgeous, beautiful, glorious human beings who have ever existed in that movie. Well, and, and I think it's okay. I, I, you know, it's it's okay. It's okay to say you find uh, actors and actresses attractive. I mean, so much of this podcast is honestly us saying, unironically, how handsome we find Scott Atkins. You know, so I mean, it's it's okay. I think I mean because because they're they're meant to be attractive. You know, and. It's, and she, you're right. She glows in that film. She really does. Yeah, she's she's one of those people who I think just has it. Uh, I Monica Bellucci would be another one who just is it. They just they glow. They have it. They they look like they're not actually human. They're sent here from by aliens to show us what beautiful people are actually supposed to look like. 
And I don't know about you, Matt, but I am not one of the beautiful people. Oh, uh, God, no. <laughs> but that's, uh, that's why that's why this is this isn't a video podcast, my friend. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But uh, bodyguard from Beijing, I would say the defender's fairly easy to come by. If that's the only way you can see it, you should still see it because the movie rules. It also has Colin Chu, who would go on to be a big deal in Hong Kong. He fights Donnie Yen in one of my favorite movies, Flashpoint. Uh, he's a he, and he's in the Matrix movies. He shows up mm-hmm. as Ghost in the Matrix movies. But it's, I don't know. It might be my favorite Corey Yen movie. Oh God, that's the I, my favorite Corey Corey Yen movie. Uh, man, I, I don't think I could pick one, brother. I mean, I'm not even kidding. I mean, he's he's probably my favorite fight choreographer. Yeah, he's pretty terrific. It's it's I I'm not gonna pin you down on one, but. I think we can agree the bodyguard from Beijing is is something that everybody should check out. Yeah, I I, I, I will tell you my favorite. I think my favorite Corey Yoon fight scene though is a Jet Li movie, and that's the uh, the, the the fight scene from Feng Saiyuk Two, which was released here in America as the Legend Two, sometimes as the Legend of Feng Saiyuk Two, but it's the alleyway fight. You can find clips of it on the internet. Yeah, there's this scene where where uh, where Jet Li's got to fight his 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 brothers in his clan. And he doesn't want to. So he basically blindfolds himself and fights off this alleyway full of guys with, with samurai swords. He basically fights them off using samurai swords. And it is this crazy, lyrical, samurai-esque, but through a Hong Kong lens, kinetic fight. It's, it's dramatic. It's a little wacky. And it's so beautifully filmed. And it's so uniquely of Hong Kong that... To me, to me, it's, it may be my favorite Corey Yoon fight scene. It's it's exceptional. Well, and it's funny because you tweeted that out a little while ago, and I, you know, I had to agree with you because I am not a big fan of Fong Sayuk too. I I think that's it's a, not good. Yeah, but that fight scene, you just tweeting that because I hadn't watched Fong Sayuk too in years, and you tweeting out that fight scene just made me remember. Oh, right. Even the shittiest Hong Kong movies at their height almost always still had something worth watching because that fight scene is just absolutely incredible. It's beautiful. Yeah. It, it's it's stunning. Uh, it, the rest of the movies surrounding it, not great. Yeah. But you know what? I'm okay with that <laughs> because <laughs> you're never going to see a fight scene like that again. You know, and that's what I love so much about growing up mid 90s, mid to late 90s, early 2000s. I felt like every time I watched a Hong Kong movie, I was seeing something I had never seen before. And I I miss that, you know, I'm continually chasing the dragon because of that, because I miss that feeling. So when a movie like, say, something like The Raid comes along, I just go like over the moon for it because it's like if you can show me something in an action movie that i feel like i've never seen before man i'm gonna ride or die for your movie until the day i die that's kind of how i felt about the night comes for us which 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 is similar to the raid but because it's the the violence is so is so excessive and it almost has like a horror movie aesthetic to it the night comes for us blew my mind when it came out because i'd never seen like horror gore sensibilities so well connected with with kung fu movie stylings that i felt like for the first time in years i felt i saw something that felt really 
unique again. Well, yeah. Uh, so the night comes for us was my pick for uh, best picture of the year in 2018. So I'm with you. <laughs> I, I just, it, it, it was on my list. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can, it, you, can actually, you can actually go to any cool news from back when I used to write for that place. It's literally on my top 10 list yeah, for that year. It, it, it's, it, I mean, Timo is just, again, not to get too deep in the weeds and off track. This is a We're bit never of gonna a talk about unleashed. Yeah. yeah uh, but Timo is just, I love the guy and I, I follow him on Twitter and he just seems like such an awesome dude and yeah. loves movies and loves, you can see him wearing his influences on his sleeve, but he comes by those influences. Honestly, nothing about mm -hmm. it is uh manipulative or crass. He just, I, I love Timo watch the night comes for us folks. Yeah. Yeah, but to go back to what you're saying, just to kind of wrap it up, you're right. Because at the time, we the internet wasn't prevalent. I mean, or it was very scarce, and we we had no real frame of reference except for these books about these these films. So every time you watched something new, you never quite knew what you were going to get. And sometimes the sense of discovery, I can't even quantify it with words. And and I and I write about movies, but it was like sometimes you, you would constantly have your mind blown, like literally every time you put in a new movie, I mean, you'd occasionally get a dud, but there were so many things where it's like, oh my God, I've literally never seen anything like that before. And it would change your idea of what cinematic language could be. Absolutely. You know, I, I saw, I mentioned that theater, the tower, I saw high risk and I am not the biggest high risk fan because it's a, it's a Wong Jing movie, but there's some really questionable shit in that movie. Yeah. Yeah. But seeing that at midnight on the big screen and the way Jackie Chung imitates Bruce Lee in the last fight in that movie was just life altering. It was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in a movie theater because I had gone to that movie and I had gotten a bunch of friends to go because I had been telling them about Jet Li because I had seen Once Upon a Time mm -hmm. in China and stuff. But it was actually Jackie Chung that that like blew me away in that movie because it is such a brilliantly comedic, yet also effectively uh, legitimate Bruce Lee represented you know recreation in that movie. Yeah. Uh, that I I love it. I love that movie, even though I have problems with it. I still love it for that. Well, and I'm sorry. I think we're just gonna have to go long on this mic because because I, I got it. We're never gonna get a chance to talk about Jackie Chung again. Um, for those who don't know, Jackie Chung was a pop star in Hong Kong, and when you're a pop star in Hong Kong, you eventually become an actor. It's just the way it is, and sometimes vice versa. But Jackie Chung was a very popular uh, pop star who happened to bear a resemblance to Jackie Chan. That's why he has the name Jackie. Um, and he's and he, when you first see him, you think, oh, well, he'll be just your typical pretty boy actor. We've seen pop stars, actors before in these kind of movies that they're not really that great. But he could do comedy. He could do action. He could do drama. And he would kill it at all of it. I mean, most of our most of our audience are probably going to know Jackie from being in John Woo's bu bullet in the head. He's the guy who gets the bullet in the head. Um, but he is such a phenomenal actor who's literally in dozens and dozens of Hong Kong films. And he's and he's and they're all different. And he's never anything less than 100% entertaining every time. 
Absolutely. He's you you mentioned he's a pop star. He's if I remember correctly, he's one of the four heavenly kings, right? Yes. Along with Andy Lau and Le- may he rest in peace Leslie Chung. Um yeah, he's a big friggin' deal and you're right. We're probably never going to get to talk about Jackie <laughs> Chung again. So I'm fine. Folks, I'm sorry we're running long. You're just I don't just just settle in, people. I mean, we'll, we'll get there eventually. Well, and, I promise. well, and I don't think that anybody that's listening to this podcast is going to complain about us talking about this. But no, Jackie Chung is terrific. You're right. Bullet in the head is well, I tweeted about this a little while ago that, that I went to that same theater, the tower and saw a midnight showing of Bullet in the head. And I had already seen it because they had their laser disc ripped copy. And people fucking laugh when Tony Long shoots Jackie. Spoilers for Bullet in the Head, folks. You're not going to have any context, but when he has to shoot Jackie Chung, people laughed, and I was apoplectic. Well, I told you a similar story about when I showed my friends The Killer in college, they all laughed at it, and I, I had the same reaction. Like, I was belligerent. Because the melodrama of it, the, the heightened emotion of it, again, I mean, we mentioned it in the last episode, but the the, the poetry of war that that, is a, that, that movie is about, and all, really all John Woo and all heroic bloodshed movies are about, was completely lost on them. They just, they, they couldn't hone in on it. It was too, it was too Eastern for them. And I, I've never quite been able to understand why my friends and other people I show those movies too don't quite under don't see in those movies what you and I see in them because to me they're so beautiful and poetic and they're 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 almost like again visual poetry just really violent poetry and yeah and I've had that I've had that same experience so many times trying to introduce people I care about to these movies I care about to the point where after a while I just stopped trying well, that's actually funny. That's how I knew my best friend, uh, Jeff. He runs the Two Strike Noise podcast. He's actually listeners. He's coming on to talk the medallion with me. Uh, He's that's a brave how, man. That's how I knew he and I were going to be best friends because he immediately, I introduced him to a lot of these Hong Kong movies and he just got it. Like he just... I I had the laser disc of Bullet in the Head. I ripped it to, or I dubbed it to a VHS. Ripped doesn't, I guess, really work with VHS, but that's what the kids know. So I ripped yeah. it to a VHS, loaned it to him, and he was just like, "I don't even know what to say." And I'm like, "All right, yeah, we're good." You and he's been my best friend for Jesus, damn near thirty years now. Um, and so I'm with you because it's like you stop trying eventually. I got lucky in that he was sort of one of the first people that I opened up this Hong Kong world to. And he just got it. He knew he was right in on it. And he will continually say that, uh, you know, I int- he thanks me for introducing him to the killer and Jackie Chan and all of these people. But uh, that's the reason I'm having him on the show in a couple of weeks is because I – he and I have been through this journey together, but it sucks when you try and introduce it to other people and they just, they don't know quite how to embrace that heightened emotion. I, I think the, I to go back to use a, a phrase I used before. I think the cinematic language is just too different for them. 
it's like it's like trying to learn how to speak a new language and some people are more adept to that than others not, not that we're smarter or anything like that just some people just aren't prepped to to kind of go down a rabbit hole that feels so alien well and to tie it into what we talked about last episode you know pit fighter very much is the same thing right i could see a lot of people laughing at the melodrama in pit fighter but as you pointed out, I mean, it's it's the it's the philosophy of war. It's very Hong Kong. So many people have this idea that Hong Kong is just fancy gunfights, and to me, that's just such a reductive analysis of what mm-hmm. the Hong Kong New Wave was about. Like, I, this is relevant to when we're recording this, that shitty tweet, you know, you and I are both big fans of Priscilla yeah. page. We that are shitty tweet of, Oh, well you can see the killer and hard boiled in their knockoffs, John wick one and John wick two. And I'm like, Oh man, I've lost it on that because I was just like, yeah. first of all, I love the John wick movies. I love John Woo movies. John wick is not, ripping off in any way john woo in fact not at all you mentioned this it's the johnny toe milky way movies that are a much bigger influence on the john wick movies than than john woo movies but so many people have this reductive view that hong kong cinema is just slow motion shootouts with doves and it's like Man, you could not be a that could not be a more shallow reading of what Hong Kong cinema was all about if you tried. Yeah, and to me, and I just want to take a take it aside for a second just to clarify that was not Priscilla Page that tweeted that. That was one of the many awful reply guys that that poor lady has to deal with all the time who said that. Yes, Priscilla, yes. Sorry, yeah. I should have made that more clear. Priscilla, yeah. we love Priscilla. That was not yes. her tweet. That was an awful reply guy tweet. Yeah. Priscilla, she's, would, she's the best. She's the best. She would never like, yeah, no, there's no way that she would have said that. But anyway, to go back to what I was about to say, to me, what Hong Kong cinema is, if I, if I had to sum it up in, in one idea, I'm going to say it right now, in really one word, Hong Kong cinema, all of it is emotion, just unfettered, unfiltered feeling joy anger happiness you know loyalty all these ideas and it's just it's turned up to 11 and it's just it's like a barrage of feeling like you know roger ebert once said that 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 movies are machines that generate empathy well it's like if if that's true that hong kong movies someone broke the dial on those films and they just pump out empathy at 100 rpms non-stop I think that's a perfect way to describe it. You know, we talked about last episode, Pit Fighter, that it's romantic in the classical sense. And I mean, what is more romantic than heroic bloodshed? What is more romantic than Hong Kong in the 80s and 90s? Uh, I think I'm not even going to try and continue this conversation because I think what you just said puts such a perfect bow on it. Let's actually talk a little bit about Unleashed, the reason which is a, which is a really great movie. And I'm excited <laughs> to talk about it. But you got to understand, we, we, we love this stuff so much, guys. And this is the first time we've gotten a chance to talk about it. So thank you for indulging us. Yeah, know? we're going to go a little bit extra on this. We're not going to go 
super long. We're not going to spend an hour talking about Unleashed now, but we are going to go a little bit extra on this episode. So uh, first and foremost, you know, I always ask people about the movies. Matt, what are the high points of Unleashed? Oh, well, to me, there's a lot. I mean, to me, it's, it's probably the best acting of Jet Li's career. I mean, he's he's phenomenal in it. I mean, because it, it so perfectly uses this kind of, because I'm going to say something now, this is going to seem a little weird. Jet Li has an innate sweetness to him. He has an, he has an innate gentleness quality about him. And his with him being a sort of abused man-child, it kind of gives him a chance to kind of kind of let that, that that innate kind of softness that he kind of radiates. Just not, not when he's trying to be like the tough guy, but when he's just being himself, it, it lets that shine through so clearly. And and so that's to me, that's one of the biggest highlights of it. The, you know, the score by Massive Attack is great. Um and when there are fights in the film, the fights are all really great. And and the supporting actors, of course, are wonderful too. You have Bob Hoskins, who is basically channeling his character from, from, from The Long Good Friday. You know, he's fun in that kind of hammy over the top villain way. You got Morgan Freeman doing his Morgan Freeman thing. So there's lots, there's so many highlights in this film. I think it's a really strong film overall. So I really want to dial in on what you said about Jet Li because I think that you're spot on. So, you know, one of the problems or one of the criticisms Jet Li got in his career early was, well, he's playing Wong Fei Hung. And say what you will about Wong Fei Hung, but that character, that legend is not an emotive character. And so he was no. playing these very stoic roles. And that's not Jet Li. Like, no. He's, as my wife said, when, because she loves Unleashed. She, fucking loves unleashed and one of the things she loves about it and one of the reasons she loves jet lee so much is as she constantly says he's just adorable in unleashed i mean he's yeah. he's sweet and cute and say what you will about louis leterrier he knew how to bring that and capture that in jet lee because he's funny he's charming he's sensitive and what I love about Jet Li so much is he can be all those things. And then when a fight starts, it's like, holy shit, this guy's going to kill me. Like his ability to turn that on, on a dime. I don't think his ever, I think bodyguard from Beijing does it a little bit. I think my father is a hero really does it well. But I don't think a movie that he's ever been in does it as well as this one does. And I, I think that quality is why, and I'm going to say something that shouldn't be controversial, but it might be. But I think it's why Jet Li, why his American films were so much more successful creatively than Jackie Chan's. Because that's an easier thing to understand than Jackie Chan's, you know, action comedy, goofy stylings. Because we kind of understand the idea of a person who can be nice and friendly and gentle until they're pushed too far. If, and if you, if you want to look back on it enough, you can even say that's kind of the appeal of Bruce Lee. Now, Bruce Lee wasn't, wasn't sweet when he, when he had his, his badassness toned down, he was cocky, but it's still the same idea of this, this normal person who suddenly gets pushed into action. And, and when the time comes for it, they really stand up for themselves and they, it kind of becomes wish fulfillment. The idea of that's what action films are meant to be in a lot of ways 
is wish fulfillment. The idea that, you know, if we're bullied, if, if we're attacked, if people we love are hurt, that we could stand up and be brave and bold in those moments. And to me, Jet Li, at his best, does that so well. He, he feels like an everyman who, when he's pushed, becomes a superman. Yeah, a couple things I want to say on that. Uh, first, I just want to really quickly address Bruce Lee. I think that's most on display in Way of the Dragon, right? Because he's this big, yes. doofy country bumpkin. And he's actually funny in it. Yes. Uh, and then it's like when the shit goes south, it's like, oh, he turns into Bruce Lee. And he's so good at doing that transition. But I don't know that your statement is as controversial. It might be controversial, but I don't think it should be. Because I think Jet Li's U.S. work is vastly superior to Jackie Chan's U.S. work. And I would go as far as to almost say that but for a handful of Hong Kong movies before he came over, for whatever reason, Western directors, producers, whoever knew how to get more out of Jet Li. Like, for example, I know a lot of people don't like Romeo Must Die. I love Romeo Must Die. I fully acknowledge its problems. But his chemistry with Aaliyah in that, like the scene where they're driving and she keeps calling him Akbar because that's what the, the, the cab that he stole and she's like, does everybody in China know Kung Fu? And he's like, of course, state law. You know, he's just, he's so charming when yeah. he says it. And the way he, it's a very chaste relationship, but the way he's sort of flirting with her, you can 100% buy that this girl who should have no reason to trust this random stranger is actually willing to essentially go through hell with him and the the one does the same thing that mm-hmm. that you know he's got his the good character in the one but you also get the great over the top i'm nobody's bitch you know which <laughs> yes. is yeah i mean he's he's got such an expressive face mm-hmm. and i feel like so many of his hong kong movies didn't know how to use that like if he wasn't a martial arts master, I legitimately think he could have been a pretty terrific romantic comedy lead, and and I am not kidding about that. I completely agree with you. And I, you know, I'm not, I'm not just saying this to blow smoke. It's like you read my mind with your spiel just because I was going to say similar things. Like he he just he radiates an innate decency, like this this wholesome quality. But it, he's also but he's but it's not corny. Like he it's charming. Like like you. Like it's it's like your wife said he's adorable, he literally is adorable, and it's such a weird it's such a weird juxtaposition to have this adorable guy who in an instant could kick your ass and have it be completely believable in both moments. And to me, that that's epitomized so well in Unleashed. Like it's almost like the perfect distill, the distillation of what the appeal of Jet Li is. Yeah, I I agree. I, I I just I I think I have to say I think this is the ultimate Jet Li performance because it yes. it uses everything that he's good at. Every single skill he has is on display in this movie. He gets to have some amazing fight scenes. He gets to look really, you know, I will 
when Bob Hoskins at the very end tries to put the collar on him and he stops the collar. I mean, my God, if you don't get chills watching that, you're dead inside. But also, yeah, he's so cute. His his chemistry with Morgan Freeman and Carrie Condon, again, you totally buy. I mean, because everything about this movie is ridiculous. Yes, completely, utterly ridiculous. And it doesn't work but for him because you totally buy why Morgan Freeman, blind piano tuner Morgan Freeman, would meet this man-child in a warehouse and immediately have affection and affinity for him. And you immediately buy why Carrie Condon's character wouldn't feel threatened or creeped out by the fact that her stepdad brought some random homeless stranger into the house. Yeah, some some middle-aged Chinese man with, with a metal thing around his neck, yeah. You buy all of it because he's so goddamn sweet. Yeah. And, and you, watching the movie, just want to be like, oh... Danny, I ha- I I have a nice warm blanket for you. Can I yeah. can I wrap you up in it? But then it's like you also get the extra awesome of like when stuff goes wrong, you're like, shit, you shouldn't have done that. Like that's yeah. not gonna be a good idea. That's not gonna help you at all. Like, well, that that brings me to something I wanted to talk about, and that's that the the choreography by Yoon Woo Ping is really different than a lot of the other other choreography he's done, and really the choreography in a lot of other Jet Li movies, uh, because it's savage. Like Jet Li, when he fights, he fights with a more with a more ferocious quality than any of his other films. Like he doesn't just hit somebody once; he hits them and then keeps hitting them till after they've fallen down, and then he keeps hitting them some more. It's got such a feral quality to it, and it's the fact that he's able to meld those two things together so well to me is astounding. But but my point is that the fight scenes in this are surprisingly different than a lot of the work Yuen Wuping's done. It's different than a lot of stuff Jet Li's done. And it really feels appropriate to the story. And it just works so well with everything else. It's like this perfect, like I've used this phrase before, but this perfect goulash of like cinematic flavors. And it just, it tastes so good. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I, I hadn't watched this for probably about, I don't know, five or six years. This is one of those movies. I've probably seen it meh, five times in my life. And it's one of those movies that sort of it fades into the background for me. And then every time I get a, a hankering to watch it, I watch it and I'm just absolutely gobsmacked by everything that works in this movie. Like yeah. how good this movie is. It It is it's like we talked about earlier. It's clearly Leterrier's best movie. I think it's up there with Yun's uh, because of, Mm -hmm. like you said, he's using a very different fighting style. And I don't think it's Jet Li's best movie because that's, for me, always going to be Once Upon a Time in China or Fist of Legend. But I think it is his best performance. I love him in Hero. I would argue Hero is close to this, but Mm -hmm. he doesn't get to show the range in Hero that no. he does here he's kind of regressive in here where he's back to being kind of stoic and you know and there and tony Liu gets to be the you know the expressive one that's a whole different podcast though for a whole different time uh, 
but yeah, but Hero's great, and I, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think Unleashed is is the best Jet Li movie, really. I think the best way to say it, I think, I think Unleashed is the most complete Jet Li movie. Yeah, I that's I think that's a fair that's a very fair way to say it because it feels like like it's almost you know one of the things I always think about when I'm talking about movies is if you were going to introduce somebody to this actor or this person what would be the movie you would introduce use to introduce them and I almost think if you're going to try and introduce somebody to Jet Li you got to do Unleashed especially if there's somebody that Let's assume they know nothing about Hong Kong cinema. They know nothing about action cinema. They're like, they just, they know you really like this actor. And they're like, what movie should I watch to see why you like this actor so much? I feel like it's almost gotta be unleashed, right? Like that's the move that that's the gateway. It's, it's like, I always argue as much as I love The Killer and Hard Boiled and A Better Tomorrow, my gateway John Woo movie for people is Hard Target. Uh, this feels like that for Jet Li. Like, this is the movie that you show somebody who knows nothing about Jet Li. I would not have said that until I rewatched it for this. I, I hadn't seen it properly since it came out on DVD however many years ago. So I hadn't seen it since then. I watched it, you know, a, a lot back then, but years have gone by. And so I would not have thought that if you had asked me that question before I watched it again. But after having seen it a few days ago, I completely agree. This is the Jet Li Gateway movie. It, it really is. It's, it's something that you can show to someone who has no frame of reference for any of this stuff, any of the stuff that you and I have rambled about on this show, and start, they, they can start to begin to understand why we are so impassioned about it. Yeah, because he's just, he's, I mean, he's, he's one of those, again, this is a a performance. I don't want to like overstate it, but this is an Oscar worthy performance that he's given in this movie. I think, I think he's really doing some just terrific stuff in this. And of course, playing off of Bob Hoskins, who's like you said, he's, he's recreating his long good Friday character, but he's so good at that character that who yeah. gives a shit um like i could watch that character forever yeah like, and he's so overbearing and and and, and danny jetley's danny is so passive you just want J- danny to stand up to him so bad like i mean you know i've seen the movie multiple times i mean i was like you're kind of just getting antsy wanting him to push back that's how much it works even though i knew what happened i still got totally invested in it all over again well, and that's why it's so cathartic in that scene I mentioned, you know, that yeah. comes at the end when he tries to put the collar on him and you see Danny's hand go up and he stops the collar. It's like, that yeah. is an earned fuck yeah scene. Yes. Like, you really go, fuck yeah, and it is earned. It is, the movie has worked its way to earning that scene, and that is not something that you see in a lot of action movies, that they spend that much time earning it. And then, of course... I'm not ashamed to admit that movies can occasionally make me cry, but the very end when, when Carrie Condon is playing the Mozart sonata that his mother played and he gets the single tear down his eye. Shit. I'm getting choked up just talking about yeah. it now. Like I, I, I I'll, I'll go ahead and say the same thing. Cause again, movies are meant to manufacture empathy as Ebert said. And you know, I cried at that scene. The whole movie is about dealing with trauma and overcoming trauma through family and love and 
going past it, becoming more than what you have been before. And that's, that's heady, powerful stuff that we can all relate to. That if you just, if you can find the right people to surround yourself with, that you can grow and be better than the past terrible things that have happened to you. And it's, and it's, and it's, a, it's such a, it's such a beautiful, deep concept for a movie that's basically about a guy kicking people in the face. Yeah. I mean, it's, it really is. I, like I said, I've seen it several times. I feel like this time rewatching it, I saw it and maybe it's because at the time we're recording, it's October, 2020. We've been in a fucking pandemic for eight months and I don't know, but just something about this movie this time. I've always really liked the movie. Uh, it's always been one of my favorite Jet Li movies, but this time it just it really hit me in a way that I think there's I think this is a special movie. I I fully say I think this is and it's Leterrier has is fine. Luc Besson, we talked about all the problems. I don't know, for whatever reason, something came together in this movie that I think is really special. Again, uh, not to be too redundant, but again, I can, obviously I completely agree. I think, I think it's, a, it's a special movie that people have kind of slept on because it's not, on every, it's not on Netflix where you can easily watch it. And people kind of forget about things like this when you have to like go and pay for the digital rental or you, heaven forbid, buy a DVD. Um, but it's if people would rediscover it, I think they would see that it like I said, it's it's the most complete, emotionally fulfilling Jet Li film. And it's it's one of the most emotionally fulfilling Kung Fu movies I've ever seen. And I've seen literally hundreds, hundreds and hundreds. Yeah, man, you and I aren't action novices. So if yeah. we're if we're going this over the top about how much we like this movie. I hope people listening will realize that we're fucking serious. Like this yeah. is not. Um, yeah. All right, Matt, we've been talking for a while, so I'm going to start winding this down here. Uh, I need to ask, we got to talk about the pool fight because that's when our boy sure, uh, yeah. Scott shows up. <laughs> it's, I, I'm going to tell you, for, for people who are listening who are wondering exactly when this is, I actually wrote down when he, when he pops up and we can see his face on screen. He shows up at an hour and six minutes into the film. For folks listening, you will hear Scott's opinion on this. He had done a, a demo with Corey Yun for this movie uh, and then came back with Yuan Wu Ping doing the choreography and they had, they had shot it, but uh you know, he was not, you know, Silvio Simak, who he'd worked with before, was the main guy in that pool fight. But I got to say, that's probably the best fight in the movie, right? Like that pool fight is pretty damn impressive. It's 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 really good. But I will say my 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 one complaint about my well, my one real complaint about the movie comes in those sequences is that there's some unnecessary wire work. In, in that season, it's like Wu Ping can't help himself, but he has to yank gently into like a, gra a gravity defying jump at least twice in that scene. And that's the only thing I actually don't like about the film. Uh, but just those little brief moments of where he's obviously being yanked on a wire. It's, it seems unnecessary for what's, for what's going on. But yeah, that fight scene otherwise in the pool is just top notch. But to be honest with you, I, I do want to give special uh, mention to the, the fight scene at the end where he fights the guy all in white, the hired gun by Bob Hoskins character. He, he brings in another martial artist, a, a machete carrying guy 
dressed all in white. He's played by a guy, a guy named Mike Lambert, who is a stuntman, a fight choreographer, also been in a lot of Hong Kong films. He was in Cheap Killers and uh, Black Sheep Affair, and he was also in the original Black Mask to tie it all back together. And he has this great little fight scene with Jet Li in a bathroom. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good scene. It's very European. In fact, they're fighting in a bathroom while, while a woman is showering next to them. It's where you want to see something, the pretty distillation of like European cinema meets Kung Fu cinema. It's this idea of this, this Kung Fu fight in a tiny, you know, Scottish bathroom with a, with a lady in a shower right next to them. It's the most odd thing, but the choreography is really good in it. Yeah, actually, I was going to bring that one. I'm glad you brought that one up. Uh, first of all, yeah, totally. There's the Luke Besson effect, right? Totally unnecessary yeah. boobs in that fight scene. Yeah. Uh, but I also think uh, that it reminded me a little bit of the bathroom fight in the Raid 2. Of, I, yes. when, when we were watching it, I commented to my wife, Kelsey. I'm like, can you imagine having to choreograph and then film a fight scene in a space that like closed in and you're having to do all these moves and all these techniques and stuff. And you've got like literally like three feet of space to work. I do think that fight is, is pretty terrific as well. And certainly yeah. a uh, good enough fight as the final fight to sort of send the movie off. Well, and, and, and I couldn't go without mentioning Mike Lambert because in a lot of ways, he is a guy like Scott Atkins. He just didn't pursue acting the way that Scott did. So, you know, the action films are filled with guys like Scott who just didn't push themselves harder to be actors. And Mike Lambert is a very gifted screen fighter, very gifted fight choreographer, great stuntman. But he just never was going, he never had the presence or the acting ability or maybe, or the desire really, I guess, to, to kind of work on, on those non-physical skills like someone like Scott did. Yeah, and there's, there are, and I think that that is one of the things that, you know, again, I mean, this is a Scott Adkins podcast. That's one of the things that I think sets him apart is he he takes the craft of acting as seriously as he takes the craft of fighting and has continually tried to improve himself. And it shows if you watch his career, it shows there's a lot of other people that can do some very, you know, I was actually kind of explaining uh, to my wife, Gary Daniels and how he was kind of Scott Adkins before Scott Adkins. And I think actually Gary's grown into a pretty decent actor. Same, but he clearly didn't, I mean, he didn't go to the Weber Douglas Academy. He didn't no, have he didn't. the same uh, sort of drive for acting that Scott did. And and that is one of the reasons that I think, you know, there's a difference between them. But I will always ride or die for Gary Daniels. I love him. Um, well, and to be fair to Gary Daniels, I also think that, that he came up at a time where he never would have had the chance to become the actor he could have been. You know, like I, I think Scott happened to hit at a transition period where he could he could be both but gary was always meant to, was always only really allowed to be you know gary daniels uh you know pm entertainment action star guy who's going to star in low budget cheapy action films yeah i agree because if you watch him in something like i am vengeance you know the ross boy ask i am vengeance he's pretty damn good like he's clearly yeah. got and, and the movie we we're watching is this 
borderline terrible dancing movie called Dancing It's On, where he plays one of the characters' dads. And they, of course, work in. He's got a fight scene in it for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> um, but you can actually tell it was so funny because all the other actors are people from So You Think You Can Dance, and they're mm. not actors in the slightest. And in fact, all the movie is shot. All the movies dubbed because I don't know if they didn't have enough money to do on set sound, but you can absolutely see in Gary, it's like, Oh no, you're actually an actor. Like when you're compared to these people, you are a professional actor who has been doing Mm -hmm. this for a long time because he's so clearly on a different level from everybody else in the movie. Yeah. And that's something I want to speak to right quick. So many people want to crap on actors like, you know, um, Gary Daniels, and they really shouldn't because he's still a really good actor. But I mean, the thing about it is there, there are other actors who just, who, who have focused more on the craft of actually acting while he's had to kind of be both. And he said, when you have to kind of split your focus like that, you're not always going to be really great at both things. That's again, one reason why to tie it all back again, Scott Atkins is so special. That's why Jet Li is so special because they could be high level at both with the right circumstances. Well, and a perfect example is Gary never got the opportunity to be on EastEnders. He never got the opportunity to star on Holby City. You know, Scott bounced. He took those TV roles and auditioned for them and went out for them because he knew they would improve him as an actor and had the opportunity to do them because also, you know, as... Listeners will know when you hear him talk about EastEnders, like the producers of EastEnders knew what they were doing. He's literally like his second or third scene in that movie. He's taking his shirt off <laughs> like they knew where in that episode they knew what they were doing. But he also took that as an opportunity. Well, it's acting. It's another opportunity for me to do what I want to do. Gary, I, you're totally right, Matt. He came about at a time he came out at the height of. Uh, PM Entertainment and Imperial Entertainment and all he ever really got the chance to be until now later in his career was Kung Fu Guy. Yeah. And uh, and frankly, I like old Gary Daniels. I see him show up in movies now and I'm pretty I'm pretty happy. He had that movie. Same. He had that movie a few years ago. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was called Forced to Fight with Peter Weller, where he was surprisingly good. Yeah, really good in it. Yeah, and obviously Peter Weller's always awesome. Um, all right, uh, we've gone on another tangent, so <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna bring us back and wrap this up. I think anybody listening is gonna know, but I gotta ask: you gonna recommend Unleash to people? I think it's clear, but and I, I, I just got I got to I got to make it very clear. I give this the highest possible recommendation. If you are a fan of this show, if you're a fan of anything about this show, you if you don't love this movie, it's because you haven't seen it. It's that good. Yeah, and I'm gonna second everything you said. If you if you're listening to us and you're like, really unleashed, check it out again. You've probably, you may have seen it, but you probably haven't seen it in the last few months. Check it out again, because every time I watch this movie, I love it more. And, uh, and so unleashed is going to get, I'm going to go as far as to say as much as I love special forces, I think this is the best movie thus far 
we've talked about on this show, it's going to get the highest recommendation for me. Yeah, I was really pleased when you told me that you wanted me to talk about this. Like, I, I, felt, I felt like I was getting away with something when you presented this to me. I was like, all right. Um, just as a little bit of an end, uh, give me some other... It, it, you got to recommend three Jet Li movies to people. What ones are you recommending? Oh, three Jet Li movies. Well, you got Hero. Hero's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's lyrical. Um, Bodyguard from Beijing. It's it's probably it's got it's probably the one of the best of his Hong Kong films. It's one of it has the great it has great fights. It has a fun story. It's really a good example of his Hong Kong work. And I'm going to recommend one of his other American films. It's one that's been kind of unfairly crapped on, but you and I have kind of bonded over it. I'm going to recommend the one. The one is dopey. It's silly. But it is so much fun. It's this weird, like kung fu Highlander, late '90s science fiction, like mess. And it should be the worst thing ever. But it is so much fun and so enjoyable. And any movie that has Jet Li declaring that he's nobody's bitch should be a movie that any action fan should want to watch. I fucking love the one, and uh, you're right. We did bond over that. And I will also say that I still think. The last fight in that where he's fighting himself, given the technical difficulties of that, is one of the best fights I've ever seen because uh, it is damn near seamless, especially for a movie that came out in 2000 or whenever it came out. Um, I love the one. That's a great recommendation. I will also shout out my personal favorite Jet Li movie, which is Fist of Legend, his remake of Bruce Lee's Fist of Fury, also a Yuan Wuping or a Yun Wuping movie that I think is just absolutely terrific. I will also have to give some love to Hitman, which is another one that is a little bit unknown and a little bit under the radar, kind of like Bodyguard from Beijing, but I think it is pretty terrific. And I've mentioned it several times. Well, you know what? I've mentioned Once Upon a Time in China enough. The other one I'm going to recommend to people is Ronnie Yu's 2006 movie, Fearless, which I think is a magnificent, beautiful, right up there with Hero, because I would have recommended Hero, Matt, if you hadn't recommended it, because I love that movie. But I think Fearless is right up there with Hero. I, I think that's a beautiful movie. Yeah, I have to say that, that Fearless is almost the swan song of the error that you and I are talking about. It came, you know, years and years after that error actually ended in Hong Kong, but it is such a love letter to that time period and to those films that it's like this loving goodbye to something that will never be again. And it's, it's such a great movie. It's, it's one of Jet's best. It's one of his last films really, because we know he's basically retired now at this point. It's so worth your time. A Fist of Legend, of course, is classic. You know, we talk about, you know, these Jet Li movies having different elements that are great. Fist of Legend has the best Jet Li fight scenes, bar none. It is the best choreography of his career. It's a phenomenal fight movie. So, yeah, I completely agree with those. Well, on that note, and I, I appreciate you saying that about Fearless. I hadn't thought about that, but I think you're absolutely correct. That That is, and it's so appropriate that it's a Jet Li, Ronnie Yu, you know, because for me, Ronnie Yu, and I don't want to go on the weeds on Ronnie Yu, but, <laughs> but uh, 
Brandon Lee's Legacy of Rage and then, of course, Bride with White Hair were also foundational movies for me. So I have always loved Ronnie Yu. And him sending it out, you got Jet Li, you got that beautiful story. If you see the director's cut, you got Michelle Yeoh. It's just such a beautiful way to put a cap on that era. I agree with you completely. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think we we almost should be doing a Hong Kong film podcast or something, my friend, you know? Well, at some point, maybe we will. Uh, If we ever ever get get through this Atkins project sometime (laughs) in the near future or not too distant future, yeah, maybe we'll talk about it, yeah. And on that note, also, uh, give me three Yuan Wuping recommendations. Oh, wow. You and Wu Ping. Well, let's see. Again, you, you got to go with Tai Chi Master. You got to go with Tai Chi Master. That's such a fun movie. It's got beautiful choreography, but it's zany. Same thing with Wing Chun. Wing Chun with Michelle Yeoh. It's got, it's got, it's got the, the exaggerated Wu Ping uh, choreography, but it still has like really functional Wing Chun martial arts in it, so I enjoy it. And Michelle Yeoh, is a, is a is an action icon and we'll probably never get to talk about her again so i just want to say that she's wonderful and you should watch more of michelle yo's hong kong work and you mentioned it before but people need to see iron monkey iron monkey is a hong kong classic it it may be the best movie that you that's solely yun Wu pings it's uh it's really good yeah i'm i'm that was actually going to be my my first recommendation. I am of the opinion that, for me, Iron Monkey is the greatest martial arts movie of all time. It is, it is absolutely staggeringly terrific. the The final fight is just a thing of legend. So that was going to be my first pick. So I'm going to second you on that. The other two I'm going to recommend are uh, one that's actually surprisingly easy to come by. In the Line of Duty 4, 1989, he both directed and did the action design on it. It stars Donnie Yen and uh, Cynthia Khan in the long-running series. It is one of the times that uh, Yun had sort of done more modern action that he transitioned to in the late 80s, and it's absolutely terrific. Yeah, wonderful stuff, yeah. And then the other one is a lot harder to find, but I cannot stress enough that you need to track it down. And it's in my intro, but 1985's Mismatched Couples, all I will say is, do you want to see a breakdancing Donnie Yen? Yes, you do. So track (laughs) down Mismatched. Matt, have you actually seen Mismatched Couples? Because that one's a pretty obscure one. Um, yeah, man. Yeah, because uh, the minute I heard Donnie and did breakdancing, and I immediately tracked that one down. Like I, I, I got that one with the quickness the minute I found out that existed. <laughs> so yeah, I've, I've seen, I've seen it, and it's, it's. it's I'll be honest with you, it's something that, that if you want to see like the weirder side of Hong Kong, that's a pretty good entry into the weirder side of Hong Kong cinema. And that's what I say. It's not. Look, I could come up with twenty five Yun Yun Wu Ping movies that are better than Mismatched Couples, but Mismatched Couples is such a only in 1985 in Hong Kong could that movie have been made. And the fact that Donnie Yen, who's one of my favorites, but is not known for his sense of humor, the fact that he is like this breakdancing kung fu master in it is just, it's a movie that I think needs to be seen. I think it what? has to be seen. 
Yeah, I, th- I think one, one good way to watch that is it's going to sound weird, but because we don't do parties anymore in this time of Corona. But if you were ever to have like people over to your house at like a party, but you have music going in the background, throw that on the TV with no sound on and just let the images play. You're going to get people who are going to stop and watch that for a bit and be like, what is this crazy fun thing you have on your television screen? Because that's the kind of movie it is. It's, it's just it, it's it's out there and it's wacky, but it's not so out there that it's going to turn people off. Yeah, no, I agree with you completely. Um, all right, so that's going to bring us to an end. We obviously didn't talk very much about Scott Adkins because he's not in this movie a ton, but we both agree that Unleashed is a movie that warranted a significant discussion and, in fact, has, quite frankly, been the longest discussion we've had on this show yet. But I'm okay with that because this was a great time and uh, we covered a lot of stuff. Matt, plug some shit. Tell people where they can find you. Well, you can find me on Twitter at Wheels Critic. That's wheels, like wheels on your car and critic, like I'm a movie critic. Uh, I have a podcast called Video Culture. It drops every other Tuesday. It's on every platform, literally every uh, every podcast platform you can find it. Um, the website for it is video-culture.com. Otherwise, I write for a bunch of different websites. As I said before, I am a Ronin, and my sword is my shitty movie opinions. And again, as I said last week, if you have some freelance opportunities, please hire Matt. I read his writing. It's terrific. Uh, I will leave links to his podcast in the show notes so that you can check him out. And I will leave links to his writing in the show notes as well. Please follow him on Twitter. He's one of my favorite people. I hope you can get that sense from the last two episodes because we could have gone on Folks, I'm literally cutting this short. We could have gone on for another three hours. So it's true. Uh, I just don't want to make your ears bleed. So I'm <laughs> cutting this short. But uh, Matt, hopefully, I will. Uh, I will be able to get you back on at least one more time before this project comes to an end because I think uh, there's some stuff we can talk about. And if nothing else, I think I'm going to get you back on if it's okay with you. I might get you back on for one of my Adkins adjacent episodes, and maybe we can dive deeper on some of these other movies that we've we've brought up, if that would be interesting to you. Well, I, I, I tell you it would be interesting. And if I can offer a suggestion, not to tease something that may not happen, but if you're going to do adjacent episodes, there's a gentleman named Marco Zoror, who I would love to talk about in detail with some of his some of his works that he's that he did in his home country. So if, I'm just going to float that idea. If it happens, if it doesn't happen, I won't be offended. But I will do. I will literally come back and talk about whatever you want me to talk about. I've had a great time on these two shows. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast. Yeah, no, that's done. We're going to get you back on to talk about Marco Zoror because I didn't even think about that. We're going to talk Kiltro. We're going to talk Mandrill. I I don't know when it's going to happen, but we're going to get you back on to talk Marco Zoror because holy shit, do we have a lot to talk about with Marco Zoror. So yeah. uh, we'll... he's like Spider-Man. If Spider-Man took a bunch of, bunch of growth hormone, that's yeah. Marco Zoror. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We're going to get you back on to talk him. So that's <laughs> absolutely what we'll do. So folks, be on the lookout for that. That's going to come down the pipeline. Uh, Matt and I talking Marco Zoror. Uh, but Matt, thank you so much for joining me for these two episodes. It was a blast. It was just a terrific conversation about a lot of movies that we love and a lot of things we're passionate about. Well, again, man, I can't express enough how much I've enjoyed doing this, how much I enjoyed getting to talk about things things like this. Because my my own show, much like your other show, is sadly not an action movie podcast. So it's been very fun and refreshing for me to sit here and just geek out and just talk 
you know, passionately about movies that are probably the most important movies to me. And I thank you so much for that, my friend. No problem, my friend. We'll talk soon. Talk to you later. And that brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks so much to Matt for talking this movie that we both obviously love. And as always, thank you to Scott for joining me to talk about his experience on the film. You can follow me at Hibachi Justice on Twitter and on Letterboxd. You can also find my work with Dana Buckler at Linktree slash Dana Buckler Show, where we talk about all sorts of movies, almost none of them Scott Adkins related. You can follow the show at Adkins Podcast on Twitter and at Adkins Undisputed on Instagram. You can email me at AdkinsUndisputedPod at gmail.com. I haven't gotten any emails. I don't think you guys love me very much. You can find links to all of these at Linktree slash Adkins Undisputed. Next week, we have a big one. We have possibly the biggest episode we've done yet. We have finally gotten to Mile High the British TV show about amorous flight attendants, wherein they get into all sorts of troubles and tribulations, and we get to see Scott starring as a male stripper slash flight attendant. Oh, right. I guess we'll also talk about a little indie movie Scott made called Undisputed 2 for a couple of minutes. So, uh, but Mile High is what you want. Undisputed 2, coming next week, folks. Arguably the movie that turned more people into a Scott Adkins fan than any other one in his career. But we will talk about that when we get into it next week. So next time, make sure to bring your ears, your podcast app of choice, and your fucking champion to Adkins Undisputed, the most complete Scott Adkins podcast in the world.